0: If you'll be making your way to the the book of James chapter 1, I said uh, to a few, you know it's bad when I have to preach off of my phone because I can't find my printer because it's still boxed up from moving. And I realized where it's really at, it's in wh- where my office is going to be, and it's under about six piles of, or boxes of books. And I really didn't feel like going and digging them all out and trying to find To make sure the ink and everything was there i was like well luckily i can open the file from my laptop on my phone so if you see me looking down real closely at my phone it's trying because i'm trying to keep up where i'm at in my sermon Uh, see when you have it in paper it's a lot easier it's got a big print i can just follow it along real quick and it makes it done and easy but uh james chapter one verse 17 and i'll I really, I've preached this before probably here. I know I've preached it in the jail in Union County. uh, But I'm only going to be focused really just on one word out of the whole entire uh, verse. Uh, This one word is really significant really when it comes to being a Christian, but even as a sinner. Uh, And so let's get into the text. James chapter 1 verse 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Uh, There's some great truths in this text. Uh, Really, for the Christian, it's really a place that you can sit down and really meditate about really everything that goes on in your life. Every good gift comes from God. Every perfect gift is from God. Uh, even James begins to write, he said he's the father of lights. That means there's no darkness in him. There's no corruption. There's no sin. There's nothing out of sorts with God. When you really get down to the very nitty-gritty of the verse, uh, James is magnifying God. He's magnifying him as uh, the perfect one, this one, this... uh, I hate to use the word individual, but... Uh, I don't like the word "entity" or anything. He's the perfect one. He's perfect in everything he does. Uh, we know that uh, even from Scripture even tells us how perfect God is. You find all the way in Genesis one one that God is perfect in the beginning. You find all the way in Revelation chapter twenty one verse twenty one that He's perfect at the very end, and that's all James is doing. But he he uses this word "variableness." And when you really look it up, it speaks to one thing about God, is that God is immutable. Uh, That word immutable means he cannot change. He does not change. I love what Dr. S. Larson Johnson said. He said, if you want to understand the gravity of God's immutability, he said, imagine a cube. We're not talking a two-dimensional cube. We're talking a three-dimensional cube. And if you've got toddlers, you probably got the little blocks at home that's got the letters and everything on them. That's a the perfect cube. He said no matter how much you apply pressure to it, no matter how much you throw it, no matter how much you try to change that cube, that cube does not change. He said that is the basis of God's immutability, that it cannot change. No matter what force you think your life has on God, it does not change who God is. It will not change. God cannot change. He is perfect through and through. No matter what you or I think of about God will not change who God is, who, what His Word has said He is. Well, we can't even begin to fathom what God and who God is, because God is immutable. He is the perfect One, and I, I really I love that that uh, James uses this word variableness. I love that he it, he just hints at God's immutability. He said that there's no shadow of turning. That means he cannot not turn back. Now, if any of y'all are Bible scholars, you're going to say, well, it said that God repented of himself in the Old Testament, right? If you read the Old Testament, you know that God has said that he repents of something that he's planned to do to man, right? We all know this. If you've studied your Bible in the Old Testament, you know that many times God said he repents. That doesn't mean that he made a mistake. That means that the man has turned from their ways, and God chooses not to inject punishment or judgment. It doesn't mean he's turned or made a, a change. He just backs off. He doesn't change what he planned on doing. He waits. And so John or James here, he uses this word variableness. You can find it over in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Malachi even uses it, he says, for I'm the Lord, I change not. I even love how the psalmist in verse 102, verse 27 says, but thou art the same. All those, those three places in scripture speak to this one truth about God, this, his, immutable, his immutable character. This one attribute is the, one of the solid foundations and keys to the Christian faith. If God was was not immutable, how would your faith as a Christian be? If God could change, if God could change his mind from day to day, how would your faith and my faith as Christians be in God? You wouldn't know from day to day what you have to do to keep in the grace of God. Every day you'd get up, you'd have to wonder, what do I have to do today what do I need to say today? What do I have to give today to keep in God's good graces? See, for the Christian, we can rest upon that the the, the foundation of this attribute of God's immutability, and that God does not change. And when we get up in the mornings, we can go to the same God that was there. Last night when we went to bed, and we're still met with the same grace, the same mercy, the same righteousness, the same love, because it does not change. Because see, if we, if God was changeable, then the Christian would be uh, like a ship on a, on a rough sea, be tossed to and fro. You'd be up, you'd be down. We're already that way enough, isn't it? We live in a changing world. I promise you, this week, last week, next month, six months down the road, something's going to come by your way that you weren't expecting, that's going to change everything that you've got to do. And you and I can get so overwhelmed with it because we live in a world of change. You know, Donald didn't expect the phone call on Saturday that he got about his father to go to the hospital. They didn't expect that they'd be in Memphis. They didn't expect their life changed. Everything changed about it. I guarantee you, Donald, no one was thinking of it. I don't know what his father was thinking. Maybe his father would have had an... But nobody else probably knew. And then their life has changed now. That's what I mean. When life is changing, God is still the same. Donald could go to the same God that he was there on Friday night for him with all this that's going on and knowing that he was going to be met with grace and with mercy and care and kindness and love and he was there for him. That's because the God that we serve cannot change; He is immutable. The God who created everything in Genesis is the same God who sits at the end or who sits in glory, and never changes His mood is constant. His affection never loses enthusiasm. His attitude towards sin is the same as it was when He cast out Lucifer. Lucifer out of heaven, and when he drove sinful man out of the Garden of Eden. His attitude toward the sinner is still the same. He stretched forth his hand, Christ, over there in, uh, in Luke. He said, come unto me, all ye that are labor, all ye that labor in a heavenly, and then I'll give you rest. The immutability of God will always be as Job twenty three thirteen. But he is one mind, who can turn him, and what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. The immutability of God is something that we as Christians need to get a hold of. Now, you may not be me. My life is is a giant roller coaster as it is. It's up, it's down. Yours may be more than that. But the last year and a half, when I thought everything was going wrong, God kept bringing me back to this one little place. Dustin, I haven't changed. Dustin, I haven't changed. Dustin, you've walked away, but I haven't changed, Dustin. I had to grab hold of that truth that no matter what comes my way in life, whether it be in my health or whether it be with my family, whether it be with anyone I come my God is still right there with me, and he has not changed. Just a few, a few little points. I want to look at, firstly, the immutability of his person. His person. let's look at the internality of God, the internalness, the the ever-self-existence. He told Moses, he said, I am that I am. Exodus 3.14 says, I am Jehovah. I am the same yesterday, yesterday, today, and forever. I didn't know when I was in high school taking Latin would be so crucial to where I'm at now. But when I read about this God, or when I read about that he's the same as always, I think of the Latin phrase, semper idiom, which means always the same. He is the, the eternal one. He's always been. Who God was before the foundation of time, before the mud slabs of the earth were laid, before he made a place for him in glory to shine, he was God. You know, you, we all hear preachers say whether well, he stepped out into nothing and created everything. I, when you really think about nothing, that means there had to be something there already once. There was nothing but God. Before there was darkness, there was God. Before he spoke forth the world and the sun and the moon and the stars, there was God. He didn't step out into anything. It was God. Now wrap your brain around that as best you can because it's hard. This is the eternal God that changes not. I am who I am. I'm always the same. I cannot change. One writer I read after says that the immutability of God does not mean that he's immobile. That means he can be wherever he wants to be, when he wants to be, and not change because he's in one place to another place. If he's over there with Johnny, he's gonna be right there with Chris, and he's gonna still be the same God that's there, same God that's there, ministering to Johnny how Johnny needs it, and ministering to Chris how Chris needs it, and yet he is the same God because he's eternal, because he is the one that before anything is was already there and when everything gets melted away as revelation tells us, he is still god he is still the eternal god he is still the jehovah of all what your life brings about does not in any way affect who god is in eternity You know, we have a tendency to think what our life is, what's going on with us, and somehow affects who God is. I'm sorry to tell you, it don't affect God one bit. Christ said he's moved with compassion. That means he understands what you and I go through, but it does not affect who God is. God is on the throne. Your life may be going through everything that you may possibly think is the worst thing in life, and yet God is still God. Still sitting there, still righteous, still promising, still upholding his oath, still doing as he said he was going to do, still bringing sinners to Christ, still passing out judgment to those that reject him, still casting those into hell that will raise their fist and 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 be disobedient to his love and his grace. Still the same God. So he not only is he eternal in His person, but He is a hypostatic union with Christ. In Scripture, Christ is mentioned as the Son of God and also as the Son of Man. Uh, There you have the, the combination of the divine and the human nature in one person, and that is Christ. Christ is all God, and many times we find that in Scripture... Uh, What is Christ doing? He's ministering. But it always, uh, I think it's in Luke. Luke makes mention that he perceived their thoughts. He knew their hearts. A man can't know what you think or what I think. No matter how good they they try to guess, they can't know. But Christ knew exactly what they thought, knew exactly what. Who they? what they were feeling. Understand, that's God working in Christ because he says, why do you perceive or why did you put this there? He's asking a question because he wants them to know, hey, I am God. I can see what you can't see. What you think you are hiding from me or from man, I can see. He perceived their thoughts. He perceived in their hearts. And Scripture tells us that God knows the heart, Jeremiah 17.10 and Luke 16.15. And yet Christ was all man and that He hungered. He had to sleep. He knew what it was to get a paper cut or to smash His thumb with a hammer. He knew the pain that you and I feel in everyday life. And yet it still did not change the fact that him and God were perfectly union in man. Really the best way to describe that is go to the Old Testament, go to the tabernacle, go to the the curtain of the holies and holies, and what you'll find is that you'll find blue, meaning divinity, finding red, which is humanity, and yet finding purple, which is the the, the perfect combination of the two. You can't have more blue than red. And you can't have more red than blue. You have to have equal parts to get purple. There in the old test, the the old tabernacle, the curtain hung with blue and red and purple, signifying the holiness of God. the the sinfulness or the human nature of man, and yet there would be one that would come in between them two and would be perfectly union with God, perfectly mixed, both man and God in one person. That's who Job looked for. He looked for the daysman that would stand between him and God. Oh, I'm here to tell you that daysman is Christ. He is the the perfect one, but yet in all that he felt in his emotions and physicality here, Christ suffered with it still and did not change. Uh, did not change that God was in Christ and Christ was in God. That divine union between God and man was the prerequisite in establishing Christ's earthly and heavenly kingship. But most of all, establishing a beautiful Savior. If Christ was not all God and all man, how could he relate to you and I? How could Christ ever get to understanding who we are as man? He, see, he was every bit you and I. There he laid, he hung upon the cross, labored in his breathing, pouring out blood. We forget that whenever. Christ is there, he is still bleeding. He was not done bleeding from being scourged, from being platted with two inch thorns upon his scalp, his hands being ripped open by the the nails that held him, his ankle bones with nails to the inside of them holding his feet to the cross. He was steadily dripping blood. And yet, he was in so much in tune with you and I was that he was still going the distance. He kept on going. He kept on going. He kept on giving. He kept on pouring out everything that he had. That even when he gave up the ghost and they pierced his side, it was still more to give. Christ emptied himself so that when we come to Christ we understand that he was very understanding of who and I, who we are and what we are and the price he paid for you and I is a price that's beautiful when we look at Christ as our savior, as our redeemer but not only as his internalness or as in Christ in the hypostatic union but look at it his uh, immutability of His person and the Holy Spirit. Genesis one two tells us that the world was in chaos. For it said that the Holy Spirit brooded upon the world. That word "brood" means that He moved upon it. He was bringing order back to it. He was taking something that was in chaos and bringing it back in focus. It's the same Holy Spirit that on the day of Pentecost 5,000 come to Christ that moved upon the hearts of men. It's the same Holy Spirit that when you and I come into or come to Christ in repentance and faith, the same one that has moved into our hearts and begins to magnify Christ, begins to teach us of Christ, begins to show us Christ, begins to reveal the truths of Christ. And it's still the same Holy Spirit that even when we, as Christians, move away from God, and though we may vex the Holy Spirit and we may quench the Holy Spirit and we may uh, cause the Holy Spirit to become silent in our lives, it is you and I that lose out on the sweet fellowship. And yet it's still what your life has done to the Holy Spirit does not affect who the Holy Spirit is. It's still an unchanging. He is still unchanging. He is still the same. He is still there. He's still ever present. He is still doing behind the scenes, which you and I cannot see. God's immutability in his person speaks volumes to who he is. But not only is God immutable in his person, but he's immutable in his practices. Hebrews 6. Verses 17 through 19, it says, "Were God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us <coughs> which hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast and which entereth into that within the veil there is the immutability of his practices that he has an oath he's given an oath an oath that is one that is unbreakable genesis 3:15 he speaks to the serpent you remember what happens there? This is all taking place in the garden, Genesis three fifteen. Adam and Eve have already done confessed what is, where they're at and what they've done. Adam goes to blaming the woman. The woman goes to blaming the serpent. And God looks at the serpent and curses the serpent, and He tells them what He said. I will put enmity between you and her, and her seed will come and bruise thy head, but you'll bruise his heel. That's the promise foreshadowing Christ's coming, defeating Satan, taking away the keys that Satan has, and having victory for you and I that come unto Christ. And that is the unbreakable oath that God had given, but yet he's undeniable in his oath, Philippians 1.6, that that he which had begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The work he has started in you, dear Christian, he'll continue that work. He'll continue it until you go to the grave or you go by the rapture. But that work will continue until the very end, to the very last breath, to wherever you or however you and I depart from this world. He'll finish the work. It don't matter how far you get off on a detour road somewhere. He'll detour you right back to where you're supposed to be, get you down the road to where you've got to go so that he can finish the work that he started in you when you came to him. It's undeniable. He won't deny that he's going to finish his work. It's an unchangeable oath. God's manner of dealing with sinners will always be through the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is no other way, sinner, to come to Christ other than the way God has prescribed. And that is through repentance and faith. I don't care how good you think you are, I don't care how much get right you got, I don't care how many good deeds you think you can do, you cannot be good enough to come to Christ because you have to admit that you are a sinner, that you're filthy, that you're wretched, that you're vile, that you deserve to go to hell and see Christ for who He said He is, the Son of God, the Redeemer, the the one that met all the requirements that God has set before to bring sinners Unto him. There is no other way. He will not change what he has said must be done for a sinner to come to Christ. Sinner, you cannot do anything. There is nothing good about you. I don't care what your mama done told you. Or your daddy told you. There is nothing good about you. They love you. They love you as parents. And we all do it. We tell our children that they're good, they behave right, and that's fine. That's making them understand that what they're doing is the right things to be doing. But when you get down to it, there is nothing good about us. And yet there's everything good about Christ, the beautiful Savior, the very Son of God. He's immutable in His practices, in His oath, but in His counsel. Psalms thirty three eleven says, The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, and the thoughts of His heart to all generation." His counsel, it really speaks to the all-knowing of God. Look at Genesis 1, 26. Genesis 1, 26 Genesis 1 it said, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. God's immutable in his counsel. Knowing full well that man would fail in the garden of Eden, Do you really and honestly believe that it caught God off guard when he made Adam and Adam was doing everything right? He named all the animals. He did, he fellowshiped with God and when God made Eve, do you honestly think it caught him off guard that Eve was going to... Look at the fruit and lust through her eyes and lust through her flesh and lust in her heart after something that God said that you couldn't have and let Adam eat it and that they may blame each other and blame the servant. God knew good and well that they were going to fail. And yet God, knowing all that, still made man. He still made you and I. He still took the dirt. Someone, One preacher said, I, I heard... He took the dust over the leftover creation. No. I believe he got right down in the midst of what he brought up, and he took and he formed. He didn't go pulling dust out of the air. Now, I know y'all women, when y'all clean y'all house, y'all don't like seeing dust particles floating around. Y'all chase them around and try to get them all out of the air before they land on something else. That's not what he's pulling. He pulled all the dirt from the ground, made Adam, made Adam to sleep, made another dirt pile, pulled the rib out, made Eve, knowing good and well that they're going to sin. Good and well that they're going to deny. Good and well that they're going to fall. Good and well knowing that it was going to set forth in motion. Thousands of years. Knowing good and well that Abraham's going to have to come out of the land of Uz. He's going to have to walk across the wilderness. He was going to be promised children. He was going to be promised this, promised that. Knowing that it was going to get to the sacrifices. And then it had to get all the way to Christ. And yet God still made man. He didn't make no mistake. God formed man with the sole purpose that they may have communion with him again. That's what you and I are made for, is to have communion with God. Not to do what you want, not what the world wants. Some of you have lived in the world. Some of you have not lived in the world. I hope you don't. hope you don't ever get that way. hope you stay close to the, to the people of God. For those little ones, Annie Ray and my grandchildren, I hope they come to Christ early. I hope they have a, such a love for God that Takes where where we as parents and grandparents have left off with God, and they take that torch and they carry it a thousand feet or more further. Because what this world has to offer them ain't nothing. It's all false. It can't do you any good. I don't care how well they paint it on TV or in movies or in videos or what. You want to know why nightclubs are dark? Because everybody's ugly. And I'm being serious. I don't care how much makeup you put on. Their hearts speak to who they are. He, she, they could be the prettiest looking thing in in the face, but their heart will tell you exactly who they are. If their heart don't watch their actions, watch how fast they dump you on the side of the road when things get hot. Yet God still he comes right alongside us knowing exactly what we are and yet he still loves us even though we mess up. God had a purpose for you and I. That's to worship and to have fellowship with him. But God had to make man because Satan had to have a place of judgment. Well don't well would he have judged Satan He did. He judged him. He cast him out of heaven. He abolished him out of heaven. He couldn't no longer be in the presence of God unless God called him into the presence of himself. He couldn't worship and couldn't sing, couldn't do anything. Satan had to have a place of judgment. Hell had to be made. Satan has to pay for what he's done. But secondly, it would bring Christ. Making man in the Garden of Eden, knowing good and well what man would do, it still had to be done because Christ still had to come. He still had to be the Savior. Can you imagine, before anything that God has done, God and Christ and the Holy Spirit in perfect communion with one another, don't know if it went like this. You can tell me if I'm wrong or not. But I think Christ was itching for God to make earth. I think he had an itch already for it. Is it time to make it? Is it time to create it? Is it time? I want to go. I want to be that one that they need to, to have fellowship with you. And God said, well, i got to make them first. Well, just hold on. We've got we to get you to where we got to go. I think Christ was itching to come for you and I. I don't think you could change my mind any other way. I think if he could have jumped out of heaven and been right there, I think it would have already been. That's how much Christ loves us. That's how much God loves man. His immutability of his practice through his oath, through his counsel, but yet through his hope. The hope that the salvation that God offers through Christ in Calvary will never change. It will never fade. It will be made none effect. For by what we do, for what God says He must do. We're born sinners. And without Christ, we'll die a sinner. And yet, God has given us hope. He said, if you'll look to my son... He said, if you'll look to my son, he said, there's your hope. There's where you can grab hold. Someone that knows what you're going through has felt every pain you felt. He said, there he is. If you'll grab hold of him, he said, I'll give you that perfect salvation. That salvation that can't fade. A salvation that can't be rocked. A salvation that can't crumble, a salvation that can't fall, a salvation that can't be washed away. It's there, it's permanent, it's as being tattooed, it's there, you can't get it away. That's the hope for you and I and for the world that is lost outside, that there is hope in Christ. Hope for a better life. Hope for change. Don't get me wrong. People think, oh, I'm a Christian. Now life is going to get easier. It's going to get harder. Sorry. Don't want to burst your bubble. But being a Christian is the hardest thing to do. And you can't do it on your own. You can't be a Christian by yourself. You can't say you're a Christian and not come to the house of God. You can't say that you're a Christian and live like hell every other day of the week. Do we falter? Yes. Do we make mistakes? Absolutely. Are you convicted by it? That's the key. If you can do what you want and have no remorse, no conviction over it, no place of repentance for it, Ask yourself, are you even saved? Well, I made. A, I don't care about a profession of faith. Tell me where you got in at. Tell me where life began to get real. When there was changes in your life. Not just where you couldn't say words and you didn't go certain places, but you had a love for things that you never loved before and hated the things that you used to love. Places where you can sit there and say, you know what? I'm Looking for the day that he comes. I had a conversation years ago. Someone asked me, "Where weren't you afraid to die when you went to Iraq? Death was the furthest thing from my memory. I had no. I couldn't tell you if I was afraid to die or not." I was too busy trying to live for the next day, for the next moment, the next breath, keeping my head down, trying to make sure that when I went on convoy escorts, was I going to get back so I could call my dad or my mom? I wasn't thinking about dying. I was thinking about living. I get home. It's the same way. June 15, 2017, I promise you, I look for the day that I die because I will be at his feet and I'll rejoice. I have no problems with dying now. I promise you, you threaten me with my life and I'll give it to you as much as I can. Because when I check out of here, I'm checking in in front of him and that's more better than to be here. Paul had it right. He said, I'd rather be there. He said, but I must be here for your needs i got grandchildren i want them saved but i promise you someone give me the button to check out and i'm checking it as fast as i can if god will let me because i'd rather be at his at his feet my hope is resting in him ain't nothing this world's got you want you want stories talk to me afterwards i can tell you every dark place i've been in this world ain't nothing good there Jay paid me early, so I have to check out a little early. He said, he said, say it's the weather. I'm going to say it's the weather. We're only halfway through. But James said, there is no variableness in God. There is no changing in God. God is constant. He's the one that you and I can hold on to. Sinner, he's the one that when you get... When you get to him, he'll draw you in as a parent. He'll love on you, and he'll show you Christ. And when you get to Christ, all you'll find is a friend that's reaching down to help you, wanting to be your help, wanting you, once he helps you, to take the seat and let him do everything else. That is who we have in Christ. If we'll stand...